I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 John, the book of 1 John. And uh, as you do, if you'll find your way to 1 John chapter 1, our main passage will be uh, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, which have already been read, but we'll start off in 1 John chapter 1, uh, verse 1, in just a moment. Most people except John, the beloved disciple, uh, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, the author of the fourth gospel, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, most folks accept that John is the writer of 1 John. This is the same John who reclined at the table next to Jesus at the Last Supper. This is the same John that we find um, next to Jesus' mother at the foot of the cross as Jesus was suffering and dying. This is the same John that raced Peter to the empty tomb and were among the first of the disciples to witness the empty tomb. John probably penned this letter that we know of as 1 John in his uh, latter years. He was an older man, uh, perhaps living in Ephesus uh, while he was still ministering to the churches there in Asia Minor. He was likely the last of the remaining apostles that had had first-hand knowledge of Jesus's life, Jesus's ministry, the healings, uh, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Uh, he is likely the last of the apostles left. And so as a result of this, his testimony is considered highly authoritative among the churches, as you can imagine. He's the last of the apostles. And so his testimony is considered to be highly authoritative among the churches. John MacArthur says that after the Apostle Paul's battle for freedom in Christ against the law, uh, after that battle that we read about in Galatians and other places, after the battle for freedom in Christ from the law, um, another dangerous heresy by the name of Gnosticism uh, came onto the scene and threatened the early church and the early uh, believers. Most likely, John was writing this letter, 1 John, to help the churches to combat that false teaching that challenged the faith. And as Jude writes in his letter, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, Gnosticism had many wrong teachings. For one, it believed that anything of the material world, anything that had matter, uh, was evil, while anything that was of the Spirit was good. So when it came to Jesus Christ, the Gnostic, uh, there were variances in Gnosticism, but some Gnostics would have believed that, yes, he was fully God in his deity, but he only appeared to be man. He was God, but he only appeared to be man. They doubted his, his humanity. Some Gnostics went so far to believe that the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus at his baptism, but then the Spirit departed before his crucifixion. Another misguided teaching of Gnosticism was that any sin committed in the body 
had no effect on one's spirit. This led to the belief that one could indulge in immorality because they denied that sin even existed. And so therefore they disregarded the commands of God and as a result they did not love those who disagreed with them. So I want you to notice how John starts off this letter that we know of as 1 John. In chapter 1 and verse 1, we read these words. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now if you'll remember John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, if you'll remember, the very first verse in the Gospel of John was, in the beginning was the Word, that capital W Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And so notice how John starts this letter, 1 John. He says, what was from the beginning. That's a reference to God. That's a reference to Christ. That's a reference to His deity, to Christ being God. But then the rest of what he says, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed, what we have touched with our hands, you can hear what he's trying to combat. He's trying to combat that heresy that Jesus only appeared to be human. He's saying, no, I've heard him. I've touched him. I've seen him with my own eyes. I've observed. And so that's what John is doing here in the opening uh, verse of 1 John. Then he addresses the issue of sin. Look down in verse 6. John writes, If we say we have fellowship with Christ, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and we don't practice the truth. Let me read that again. He says, If we say that we have fellowship with Christ, and yet we continue to walk in darkness or sin, we are lying to ourselves and we are not practicing the truth. He'll say it even more directly in verse 8. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's very important as we come to Christ, we recognize who we are. We are sinful and we have sin. We can't say that we don't have sin. We do have sin and we have a lot of it. And so then in chapter 2 and verse 4, he deals with the commands because some of the Gnostics believed that there was no sin, then they disregarded the commands of God. And so in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, The one who says, I have come to him, or I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. John, writing under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, writes these words. The one who says, I have come to know Christ, yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Those are hard words, aren't they? And then in verse 11, he deals with the idea of hatred. As the uh, Gnostics, the, anyone that would uh, disagree with their teaching, uh, they, they were hateful. And so in verse 11, John writes, But the one who hates his brother is in darkness, walks in the darkness, doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded 
his eyes. So in other words, John is saying that the evidence that one is a true follower of Christ involves the following. Belief in both the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, you believe that Christ Jesus is both God and man. Evidence of a true follower of Christ would believe that Christ was both deity and humanity. But also, a true follower of Christ would recognize their own sin. They would acknowledge their own sin. And they would even confess their own sin, according to 1 John 1.9. If one is a true follower of Christ, they will keep God's commands. Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I say. If you keep my commands, um, you will abide in my love, in John chapter 15. And so it's evidence that you're a true follower of Christ if you keep God's commands. If you love your brother, it's evidence that you are saved. Because John will go on to say that who can say that he loves God and yet hates his brother? The truth is not in him, he'll say in 1 John chapter 4. And so the evidence of true saving faith uh, involves believing in the deity and the humanity of Christ, recognizing your sin, uh, confessing your sin, keeping God's commands, and loving your brother. And then we come to yet another indicator of one's faith, according to John, in John, uh, 1 John chapter 2, uh, verses 15 through 17. Let's read these verses once again. He says, Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's lifestyle, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. John writes to believers the command of God to not love the world. To not love the world. But what is he referring to when he says world? For doesn't God love the world? Doesn't God want us to love each other? And doesn't God want us to love this creation? So what could God mean when John pins these words... Do not love the world. Well, first of all, when John says do not love the world, he is not implying that we as Christ followers should not love the people of the world. We know better than that, don't we? John 3.16, say it with me out loud if you will. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. There's no way that to not love the world can mean to not love the people of the world. Jesus says in Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, he said to his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. To every creature. Preach this good news. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus would say to his disciples, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We know that God loves the people 
of the world. We were taught as little children that God loves everyone. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in God's sight. You know, that's why our pastor and a team of people are in Ecuador this very morning, today. They're going to the uttermost parts of the earth. Why? Because God loves people. And God commands us through Christ, preach this gospel to the ends of the earth. Preach this gospel to every creature. And we know that God has some from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue on earth who will be saved and will be our brothers and sisters in eternity, forever. We know that God has some who will be saved. So it cannot mean that we are to not love the people of the world. But secondly, to not love the world cannot mean that God did not want us to love this created world, this physical world in which we live in. We read about his creation of this world in Genesis 1. And if we were to read it right now, at the end of each day of creation, we would read words like this. And God saw all that he had created, and it was good. And for five days, you would read that statement. God saw all that he had made, and it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. And then on the sixth day of creation, God would create man. And at the end of the sixth day of creation, is it because he created man? Is it because he had finished all of his creative work? Not sure. But he says he saw all that he had made, and it was very good. It wasn't just good, it was very good. God was satisfied with all that he had made. But he even commanded man to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it. And so God placed man in the place of authority and responsibility and stewardship for this world. Now we know that man sinned in Genesis 3 and that the chaos of sin and death entered into the world of good and order. Matt Chandler says that the world in which you and I live in is not the world which God created it to be. But despite the fall of man and God's disappointment in man, God does not want us to trash this world. So it cannot mean to not love this physical world. So it doesn't mean to not love the people of the world. It doesn't mean to not love this world. So what does the command to not love the world mean? Well, the command to not love this world has to do with the organized system that acts as the enemy of God. There is an organized system that acts as the enemy of God. John MacArthur writes that it is the invisible spiritual system of evil dominated by Satan and all that it offers in opposition to God, His Word, and His people. I want to read that one one more time. John MacArthur writes, It is the invisible spiritual system of evil that's dominated by Satan and all that it offers in opposition to God, His Word, and His people. 
In other words, there is a world in this world that is not part of God's world. So look at these scriptures and let's see what they tell us about the world. First of all, I want you to notice who's in charge of this world's system and governance. Who's in charge of this world's governance or world system and governance? 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says that we know we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. The whole world is under the sway of the evil one. John 12, verse 31 says, Now this is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Notice the words. Ruler of this world will be cast out. We know that cannot be referring to Christ. He's not going to be cast out. But God is the ruler. So who's this ruler? The whole world is under the sway of the evil one. There's a ruler of this world who will be cast out. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler <coughs> or the prince of the power of the air, maybe your translation says, who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Did you notice there's a ruler, there's a prince over the power of the air, there's a ruler uh, of this world that's going to be cast out, there's one that has the whole world under his evil sway. So who's in charge of this world's governance uh, and system? Who's in charge? Well, I don't understand this. I'll be honest with you. There'll be a day if, if, if we're allowed to ask questions in heaven to God, there, this may be a good question to ask. Why? Why was Satan given delegated authority and uh, power temporarily in this world? Why, why did it have to happen that way? What, you know, that may be a question that, that if we're ever sitting around and we get to ask questions, that may be a good one. I don't have the answer. I just know that God is in control. He's on the throne. And for a time, for a season, he has allowed Satan to have temporary delegated authority. He has permission by God to rule this world. And the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And the ruler of this world will be cast out. And the ruler or the prince of the power of the air has ways uh, that we used to walk in according to the ways of this world before we came to know Christ. I want you to notice the world's disposition toward God, the things of God and the people of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. There are some things that go against the knowledge of God, that set themselves up against God. John chapter 15 and verse 18, Jesus says to his disciples, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, the world hates you. 
That's what Jesus told his disciples. The world hates you. And so the world sets itself up against the knowledge of God. The world hates God, hates Jesus, hates the people of God. And then 1 John chapter 4 and verse 5, they are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. But John says, we are from God. There's a clear dividing line between this world, the governance, the system that's dominated by Satan, that has the whole world under the sway of the evil one. There is a clear difference between that world and the other worlds that God is talking about, that he loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that he loves this world that he created. But this is a world, this is a system, this is an organized system that sets itself up against God. So James in chapter 4, verse 4, James will say to uh, his, writer, his listeners, adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes the enemy of God. And so there's a clear dividing line. Are you on the side of this world or do you belong to God? Are you on God's side or are you on the world's side? God commands us, do not love this world. But he not only says not to love this world, but he says don't love the things of this world. Don't love the things of this world. One of the greatest lures that Satan uses to draw one away from God is that of money and of riches. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy and where thieves can break in and steal. 1 Timothy 6, verse 9, Paul writes to Timothy, But those who want to be rich... They fall into a temptation and a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires plunge people into ruin and destruction. It's a trap of the devil and of this world. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10. This is Solomon. Solomon, who was one of the richest men to have ever lived, he writes these words, The one who loves money is never satisfied. The one who loves his wealth he never has enough income. And so do not love the things of this world. Do not love money. Paul would write to the Colossians. He would say at the end of his letter to the Colossians, he would say, Luke, the dearly loved physician, and a guy named Demas greets you. You ever heard of Demas? He says, Luke the dearly loved physician and Demas, they greet you. And then just a few chapters later, if you turn in your Bible, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 9, Paul writes these words to Timothy. He says, Demas has deserted me because he loved this present world and has gone back to Thessalonica. At one point, Demas is counted along with Luke. Demas and Luke greet you. And at another point, Paul has to write those hard words, Demas has deserted me because he loved this present world. You know, I can't see into your hearts today and you can't see fully into mine, but you know who can see today? 
God can see. And I don't know where that line is because we live in this world and yes, we've got to buy stuff to survive and, and live and eat and, and, and have a roof over our heads and clothes on our backs. I don't know where that line is. But God can see the line of whether we love this world more than we love Him or whether we love Him more than we love this world. John gives us three reasons why we're not to love this world. Number one, did you see it in verse 15? Do not love the world nor the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's not Kevin's words. That's not Kingsville's words. That's God's words. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. This is the same principle that Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can be a slave of two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. But Jesus makes it very clear, you cannot be slaves of God and of money. Jesus says it's impossible. You can't do it. But how many of us try to live life with one hand on God but one hand in this world. Jesus says you cannot do it. It's impossible. You cannot do it. You cannot serve two masters. You'll hate the one or you'll love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and you'll despise the other. Jesus says you can't do it. But yet how many of us will continue to live life trying to do it? Jesus says it cannot be done. You cannot serve two masters. Do you love this world or do you love God? John gives us three reasons. Number one, he says, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Secondly, the threefold tactics of the devil and this world are not from the Father. Look in verse 16. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father God, but is from the world. I call this the threefold tactics of the devil and this world. They're not from the Father. If we had uh, time and we went to each of these scriptures, but you'll remember them. Remember early on in the, uh, in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, Eve is tempted by the devil. Remember God has told Eve and Adam to they could eat from any tree in the garden just don't eat from the one tree the, the serpent comes into the picture and he tempts Eve and says did God really say that you can't eat from the trees and, and then uh, he casts doubt on Eve and then the Bible says that Eve saw that the fruit was uh, delightful and good and what did she end up doing? She ended up taking the fruit and eating and you know, Satan had tricked Eve because he basically told her that God is withholding from you. God just knows that if you'll eat of that fruit of the tree, you'll have knowledge like God. You can be like God. You know what Satan did? He used these three tactics on Eve. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Fast forward to the story of David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. You remember David was supposed to be with his men out in war, but instead he was back at the palace and he's taking a stroll in the afternoon perhaps on his roof 
And the Bible says that he looks down from the rooftop and behold, he sees a woman bathing. The lust of the eyes. Then he wanted that woman. He sought to bring her in. The lust of the flesh. And then the pride of life. After he had made the mistake and they found out the woman was with child, he tries to cover up his mistake. Why? Because he's worried about his own reputation. The pride of life. So Satan got him too. With the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. I don't know if you realize it, but that's all Satan's got. Those are his three tactics. And he uses them over and over and over and over throughout history. How many people has he brought down through these three tactics? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. They're all from this world. They're not from God. But Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, he was tempted by the same three tactics of the devil. If you go back and you read in Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus had been fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. And what does Satan do? He says, Jesus, if you'll just turn those stones into bread and feed yourself. You think that would have been a hard temptation? Been fasting for 40 days? Would it have been wrong for Jesus to, at any other time, to have turned stones into bread to feed himself? I don't think so. But not in this moment. Not when Satan's directing the shots. Turn these stones into bread and... Feed yourself the lust of the flesh. Then he takes them up on a mountain and he says to throw yourself off and the angels will take care of you. And, and it's the lust of the, the eyes. And then the, he brings them to the high mountain and he says, all this I will give you. Can you imagine Satan offering Jesus the temporary kingdom of this world? All this I'll give to you if you'll bow down and you'll worship me. The pride of life. Praise God, Jesus had enough to say no to Satan those three times. And he went on and became, he who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Praise God for Jesus. So three reasons why John tells us not to love this world. Because if you love this world, the love of the Father is not in you. The threefold tactics of the devil, they're not from this world. I mean, they're not from the Father, they're from this world. And then number three, the world and its lust is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. Mark chapter 8, and verse 36, Jesus says, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What does it profit a man... You could spend your life trying to gain all that this world has to offer. But if you do that, you're forfeiting your soul. What does it profit a man if you gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? David Platt, in his book Radical, writes, Ultimately, I don't want to miss out on eternal treasure because I settle for earthly trinkets. I don't want to miss out on eternal treasure because I'm, I settle for earthly trinkets. The other day, my little boy Micah, who you see me with sometimes, five-year-old Micah, and I and my middle son Levi, who really didn't want to go, but I made him go with me, went to Chuck E. Cheese Pizza. 
Now, Micah loves to play the games. Uh, truth be known, I love the pizza. I just need an excuse to go. And so I told Micah we would go to Chuck E. Cheese Pizza, and so we went to Chuck E. Cheese, and we spent over $50 there just getting in the door. We, we didn't have to, but I saw the choices, and there were two pizzas and three drinks and 80 game tokens. I knew we were going to do the tokens. I didn't do the math to see if I was getting a good deal, but I wanted the pizza anyway, and so I spent the $50. And Micah took off with his tokens like every other kid in the place, and he began to put the tokens in the machine. He began to play the games, and at the end of a game, depending on how well you did, the machine will spit out a certain amount of tickets. If you, if you do really well, you, you make a lot of the basketball shots, the, the machine will spit out more tickets that is yours at the end of the game. I watched as people put tokens in the games, as they played the games, as they collected their tickets at the end of the games. Sometimes people were walking through the game area with big wads of tickets in their hands. Many times they would go back to their table and put the wads of tickets on their table and they would go back and collect more tickets by playing more games. I watched as sometimes adults would go back to the token machine and would put more money in the token machine to get more tokens so that they could go play more games so that they could win more tickets. I watched this phenomenon. Then, at the end, they have this special ticket monster machine. It's a machine that you put your tickets in one at a time, and the ticket monster will count how many tickets you have, and at the end, it will give you a receipt of how many tickets you had, and then you take that ticket receipt up to a counter where there's a Chuck E. Cheese employee who will help you to decide what you can afford with the amount of tickets that you have. And you're staring at all these, all this stuff, this store of stuff for kids. Well, here's the kicker. You may have just spent $50 to get in the place. Some people may have spent 20 or 30 more dollars on the tokens. You played all your games, and let's say you did really well, and you collect somewhere between 300 and 400 tickets that you've won by playing the games and you go up to the counter with your little ticket receipt and you look among the choices of what you can buy for 300 to 400 tickets and you soon realize that you have basically been ripped off. <laughs> you might get a toy snake, you may get a pencil, or an eraser, you may get some stickers, you may get a fun drinking straw, I brought a few things with me, a little gold medal, a little basketball Steve, a little uh, notepad, a little whatever this is, <laughs> slinky. to top it all off, we got some bubbles, all right, some bubbles. Now, were you listening just now? 
when I said I spent $50 to get in the place. I didn't spend $20 more on tokens, but I saw people who did. And I don't know what kind of ticket number we had, but if we would have had that amount, it doesn't matter. You don't get diddly squat. So you've spent approximately $75 for some trinkets that might have cost Chuck E. Cheese $1. But you know, it hit me. That's exactly what we do when we love this world more than we love Christ. We run around and we chase power and influence. We chase possessions and wealth. We chase pleasure and self-gratification. We chase popularity and fame. We chase people and relationships. And we run around and we put little tokens in the machines in order to play the games, in order to get the tickets, in order to go to the counter to buy trinkets. Trinkets that will not last. When in Jesus Christ, God has given us the greatest treasure that money could never buy. And when in Jesus Christ, God has given us the greatest treasure that will last and last and last and never get old and never rust and never decay. And yet we settle sometimes, so oftentimes, for trinkets. The late Jim Elliott once said this. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. So how do we live out these words of John to not love this world nor the things of this world? Let me tell you, first of all, we must love and treasure God and Jesus Christ more than the things of this world. We must love and treasure God and Jesus Christ more than the things of this world. We used to sing a song, Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, you are more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds, and nothing I desire compares with you. Second, not only must we love and treasure God and Jesus Christ more than the things of this world, but we must reject the ways, the words, and the so-called wisdom of this world. We must reject the ways, the words, and the so-called wisdom of this world. I tell you, in this day and time, perhaps more so than any other, it seems like if all the other people are running this way, probably God's telling us to run this way. Doesn't it seem like that? Shouldn't we be like fish swimming upstream when all the other fish are swimming downstream? This world and its ways and its words and its so-called wisdom, we must reject it. And we must love and treasure God more than the things of this world. 
And then thirdly, we've got to learn to live for the eternal and not for the temporary. Live for the eternal and not for the temporary. We need to be like the man that Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. Do you treasure Jesus that much? Do you realize what a treasure we have in Jesus? Would you be willing to sell all that you have in order to buy the field? The field that has the treasure. Are you so convinced that Jesus is the greatest treasure that you can see the trinkets of this world for what they really are? Trinkets. Let me close and invite you to do like the hymn writer says. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I don't know why God had me preach this to us this morning. And it was so tempting to try to be the Holy Spirit in the message today. But I left it kind of vague. Because God is going to speak to your heart like he's speaking to my heart. And what he says to me will be different than what he says to you. But do you love this world? Do you love and treasure Christ? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will go strangely dim. If you look, the light of his glory and grace. Would you pray with me?